Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, the, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. And today we have our Monday show, so that's going to be all kinds of emails with questions, comments, commentary that you've sent to me. At Jack at the survival podcast.com. Again, Jack at the survival podcast.com. Put question for Jack, video for Jack, story for Jack, article for Jack, something like that in the subject line. That'll help me filter it. And I'll try to get your stuff on the air. Understand I get about two to four hundred emails a day like this, so there's absolutely no way I can get them all on air. I do try to at least look at them all. I respond to a few, but usually when it's a show type email, I just kind of look at it and go, can I get this on, can I get this on or not, and I put it in a folder, and then at the end of the week I pull out of a folder of a couple hundred that made it that far, 10, maybe 12 of them. So that's why if you send something in and haven't heard it, it's uh, it's why. It's a quantity thing. It's not a quality of what you're sending me thing. Before we uh, get into your questions, comments, and commentary, though, let's take care of our housekeeping segment. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, that's Frank Sharp Jr.'s operation. Let me tell you something. I, I really think it's important that if you have not taken a firearms training course, that you consider doing so. Um, and even if you have, that maybe you consider doing so again. One of Frank's big things, and this is why I love what he's doing so much, every instructor that he has, uh, including himself, goes and takes courses from other schools every year to continue their own training because they practice what they ple- preach, which is if you're going to rely on something like a weapon for defense, then you better continuously be learning and continuously improving because if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. That's how it works when it comes to self-defense and dealing and handling and utilizing weapons. And there's a lot of things that in a typical range that you might go to, you're not able to do uh, to really train the way that you need to be training. And they make it possible for you to train in real-world, real-life situations. So please consider getting in touch with Fortress Defense Consultants sometime soon and setting up a training class. And remember, it doesn't matter where you are. If you can put together a small group, talk to some guys at work, maybe if you've got a gun club or a, a retreat group or whatever, they will put together a course and bring it to you and do the training at your side if you have more, you know, more than two or three people. Uh, they'll come out to you and do the training with you. So get in touch with them today and see what they can do to put together some training because if you're going to rely on that weapon for your life, for your family's life, if you don't have the training to go along with it, when the time comes, you may not be able to do what needs to be done. We all like to believe we could, but life ain't like the movies, folks. So consider getting some training today. Next up today, uh, backyard food production. Uh, I am so happy that Marjorie has come back as a sponsor on the show. Uh, we had no issues really on either side. It was just some things that had to be rebalanced on her end uh, and uh, kind of moving to a new level. And she needed to take a step back to go forward. So when she wanted to come back, I welcomed her back. Uh, it's probably the only time I would ever do that for anybody because I so love her product and I so believe in what she's doing. If you want to turn your backyard into a food production machine, you need her DVD, plain and simple. And the resources that come along with it uh, are invaluable. If you've listened to her recent interview, you know she is amazing. She will show you everything that they're doing and how they feed themselves off their own property. 
And even though she has about 30 acres, her entire operation, as far as the garden and the rabbitry and the things that she really does to you know feed her family, is only a couple acres. And you can adapt this down to a half acre or a tenth of an acre in the city if you need to. So check out her DVD, today, DVD again today. Again, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Uh, next up, remember, connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and our forum. And um, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, I offer a discount for military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps service. We call it a service-level discount. I recently had a call from somebody who didn't want to be on the air, but basically said with law enforcement, maybe you should only take law enforcement people and give them a discount if they're part of Oath Keepers. I, you know, I'll tell you what I will do. If you are an Oath Keepers member, for any reason, I'll give you a discount. I'll put it to you that way. I actually believe that any kind of law enforcement member that listens to this show on a daily basis and doesn't get tired of it and turn it off you know, within a week or two and decide that there's nothing here for them uh, and, and can listen to me rant on in my libertarian manner the way that I do sometimes and then cares enough about what we're doing here to support this show is the kind of law enforcement officer that we want on the streets every single day protecting us. And I don't believe that the people, you know, that you would call maybe a jackbooted thug, the kind of officer that the other officers don't want with them either. I don't believe that person's listening to the show, and I don't believe that person's going to support the show anyway. That's why I haven't done that. But I would give anybody, if you are a current Oath Keepers member, like a supporting member or something like that, and you don't qualify for the military law enforcement, you send me proof of your Oath Keepers membership, I'll give you a discount. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get on to uh, the main topic of today's show, uh, which is your questions, comments, concerns, and we have some cool stuff here. Uh, the first one comes to me from Jason, and Jason says, Jack, thanks for all you do. You've spoken about using a cash equivalent in your IRA. I have a money market fund available to me. Would you please answer the following questions? One, how does your money in a money market fund compare with cash in a savings account? It's a good question, and the answer is it... it there's some technical differences and there's usually some requirement differences and a money market account usually will pay usually will pay a little bit better interest than a typical savings account and generally speaking your money market fund is going to have higher minimum balances uh, but money market funds often will even come now in an IRA this won't apply because you're, you're holding it in an IRA so it's not liquid money anyway but if you had an a money market account um and it wasn't in a tax deferred account where it was liquid meaning you could spend it without any tax consequences um you would have a checkbook and you could write checks against it so a money market fund is kind of like a savings account with a checking privilege attached to it with a little bit better of an interest rate so it's Pretty good to go. It's also FDIC insured. Now we all know if the government flops, then the government flops, and then we're all in trouble. Uh, but in 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 most situations, if that particular fund fails, the government's FDIC program steps in and insures it, just like it does a bank in the event of a bank failure. So they're really so close to each other, it's not worth worrying about. And they're ideally suited for things like IRAs, 401ks as a cash equivalency option because it is protected money. It is as good as any cash can be inside the banking system, uh, and it is FDIC insured. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't everybody just 
always have a money market fund since it pays a little bit better interest? Well, because it's not quite as liquid other than with the check writing privileges as a savings account. It's generally not something you're going to walk up with. I guess, you know, most people, actually you can get ATM cards to, to take money out. But there's usually restrictions on how often money can come in and out. They're really designed for people that are, you know, doing financial management long term as a safe cash store where a savings account is, can be that, but it's really designed to be a little bit more flexible. Now, when you look at a money market account, you say, well, where's, you know, how do, how do they pay you interest? What are they doing with the money? Typically, they're holding government debt. Uh, they're holding what they call commercial paper. Uh, and there may be holding uh, bonds uh, from other uh, corporate entities, and they're loaning money. Sometimes they're they're holding foreign bonds, so they keep a relatively safe um, profile with their investment. The manager of a money market fund, and it's kind of like a mutual fund light is a way to look at this. Tries to keep the value per share always at one dollar, and that's why it's looked at as cash. So that's what a mutual fund is. Now, the next question is, do IRA managers typically have a hidden cash option? And if so, wouldn't they hold the cash in a money market account anyway? I don't really know what you mean by IRA managers. Um, if you're talking about 401ks and not IRAs, and you're just flipping those two words around, in a 401k, you're actually restricted. So when you say, I have this money market holdings account that I can put money into in an IRA, I'm wondering if you mean 401k. And if you mean 401k, then they'll give you this list of places your money can go, and that's the only places your money can go, and you're stuck with that. And then that money market is your cash equivalency. Um, if you're If you have an IRA, you can do whatever the hell you want. And if you are in a financial institution with an IRA where it's difficult to do what you want because of some way they've set it up, well, then it's really easy for you to find another institution to hold your IRA for you and move it. You can move it over to E-Trade, and within there you can buy, trade, sell, do anything you want to do except pull the money out without tax consequences. So um, I'm not really sure what you're asking here. Now, I'm getting a sense that what you actually meant is do mutual fund managers have a hidden cash option? where they can hold the money in a money market account. So if I am, let's say, uh, the fund manager for a mid-cap company, and I'm supposed to be invested in mid-cap stocks, do I have a hidden place, a hidden place, that I can take my investor's money when I see the mid-cap market taking a beating, and inside that fund move it over to cash? And the answer is absolutely no, I cannot. And that's why mutual funds are a huge risk, and that's why the mutual fund scam is one of the biggest ever perpetrated on America. Because your investment advisor says what to you? Oh, this fund's really great. This advisor's been doing good for a long time, and he's got this incredible track record of returns, and look at how good this guy's doing. And they send people out to these companies before they invest with them to work in disguise there and see what they're doing and estimate their profits and blah, yada, yada, yada. Well, you would believe that you've got this incredible investment team managing your 50 bucks a month. Right? That goes into that one fund. I mean, they care about you that much. They're going to do all this. And the reality is all they can do is pick stocks in a certain classification. And this is set by regulations that are considered a mid-cap stock because you're in a mid-cap stock fund. And if the entire market is falling on its face, that fund manager has to sit there and take it. And as people start dumping the fund, he sells the stock that he needs to raise the fund to pay out the people that are cashing out while your fund crashes and while the underlying stock value crashes. He cannot move the fund's money into cash. 
I'm not saying he even should be able to, but the illusion that he can is, is perpetrated. On a 401k, if you meant 401k managers, you manage your own money in your 401k. And, and I always thought there had to be a cash option. Apparently there doesn't. You have one if this is a 401k. In an IRA, you control your money. That's why I think it's a superior form of investment. The only purpose that I see for putting your money into a 401k is when you have a healthy match from your employer. If your employer is doing dollar for dollar matching to 5%, maxing that out and putting that piece of money away as long-term retirement tax-deferred status makes sense. If they don't, any kind of tax-deferred investing makes more sense in IRA. Now, there's certain levels, like if you want to contribute a certain amount of money, there's certain restrictions based on income level, and sometimes you can do something in a 401k you can't do in an IRA, and that's very individually specific. But in general, for most people, when we're looking at contributions of you know 5%, 7%, of our money for long-term retirement planning, you're better off with an IRA because you have complete control unless you've got that big employer match. And remember, this is so important, folks, never put 100% of your retirement money into 401Ks, IRAs, and other tax-deferred vehicles. Always put some chunk. If you can only do 10% savings, then, man, 6% maximum in tax-deferred. Put the other 4 to 5%, you know, maybe even split, somewhere where it stays liquid and you can get it because you don't know if you're going to need it. And when your financial liar tells you, oh, you can just borrow against your own account, slap him in the ear, Tell him to go on about his way and do as he's told or get yourself a new one because that never works. If you are in such a bad financial situation that you have to borrow for your 401k, unless it's a very specific event where there's going to be money coming in to cover it, if it's if it's a life event instead of like I'm buying a house and I need to cover the mortgage for one more month until the house, you know, I've got the house already sold, but it's going to be here for two months in contract or whatever, unless it's something like that where the, the other side is visible, you're never going to get out of it in 90 days. Then you're going to end up on the hook for the taxes. So that plan doesn't work. You need money, both deferred and non-deferred. And remember, the deferred money is the most regulated money you can hold. And cash money or uh, gold and silver are the least regulated, most anonymous money you can hold. And you need some of both. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, this next question comes to us from Christopher. Christopher says, Jack, what can a first-time home buyer do as far as initial setup and what to look for in a new home for livestock? I would like to have a few chickens, a couple of goats, and possibly a cow. Sorry, I've been listening to your show for about two and a half years and have not heard much about livestock. My wife and I are just begun to look into buying a house on one to two acres. Hopefully not too far from my job, but still far enough away from the city. I would like to plan ahead and get the best suitable land for raising livestock. Any help you can give will be appreciated. Simplify. Oh, you must be a Marine, Christopher. Thank you for your service, sir. All right. Uh, first of all, I'm going to do something that it bugs me to do because there's another great big giant BS global warming article in the middle of the damn thing. But there's an article in this month's edition of Mother Earth News about setting up a one-acre uh, self-sufficient homestead. I think there's a few flaws in it, but I think on two acres it would work a lot better. Uh, and it includes cows, it includes hogs, it includes poultry. So I think you could make this work for exactly what you're saying. So I'm going to recommend that article as a reference, and I'm going to see if it's online because they don't put all of their articles online. They put some of them online. If it's on, I will put online. I will put a link to it in today's show notes. Um, so that's going to be the first reference I'm going to give you. The second thing is I'm going to give you some thoughts. Um, If you want livestock, then they need to eat. And the more you can provide for them on your land, the less you're going to have to buy feed to feed them with. 
So if you're serious about livestock, especially when we look at, say, goats and possibly a cow, we're looking at renumerate animals, animals that eat grass and pasture. So you're going to really want to look for a good level flat piece of ground that can be cultivated into pastured paddocks. If you had two acres and you took uh, an acre of it and set it aside as pasture for goats and cattle, and then you broke that up into 10th acre paddocks and you moved the cow and the goats around that, um, you would be able to uh, do a really good job of pasture management and you could actually be growing crops behind them. So let's say you have your goats and your, your, you want one little dairy cow and maybe it's a miniature uh, cattle. I mean, that's what I would do in this situation. Um, uh, and, and maybe a couple goats and you put them in this fenced area. And the problem with goats is they climb fences, man. Uh, really think about the goat thing. Goats are great creatures. But they are escape artists, and when they get out, they eat anything they can get their hands on. But let's say you're doing that that paddock uh, type of situation there. You can do a really good job. You know, let them work the land for a little bit, move them, give the land about two weeks to rest, plant it with a good pasture cover crop mix, and improves that pasture, and uh, keep moving them around. And you can basically on an acre keep a few uh, animals that, generally speaking, people would say an acre is not enough to support them if you use this paddock approach. So you want to look if you want to do that, then you need to look for land that's going to be easy to cut up that way. So the more regular the shape of the land, the way your sun flows, all of that stuff, the better. If you do it a little slower with less livestock, you can actually use, let's say, a half of an acre this year and then use a half of an acre next year. And that half acre that they're not on, you can be planting things that are more usable for yourself and kind of rotating your gardening and your, your stuff back and forth. Uh, putting in some fruit trees and things like that, if you can keep them away from it long enough for them to mature, that's a long-term source of food for livestock. And I'm talking full-size, big, on-their-own-rootstock trees that will outgrow. So you can pick a little bit, but it's going to produce way more than you can use. Uh, and that will help fatten you know, hogs up, let's say, if you wanted to do those in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the fall time. So there's a lot of stuff you can do there. The big thing you're going to want to look for is, one, I mean, no homeowners associations, period. I mean, that's, it's so easy to, to lose sight of that. And it's so important that you live somewhere where you can actually do this stuff without anybody causing any problems. And you need to make sure that there's other people kind of sort of doing it in the area that aren't getting any problems. Um, I, I would be really, really tight on making sure that the land is going to be usable for pasture if you want to do this. So again, good soil, uh, level to, to slightly rolling hills is fine, but you do not want my land. My land is not good for raising goats and cows, right? I'm in rocky, uh, mountainous terrain. You do not want that if you want to pasture, you know, your critters. So, I mean, that's the best advice I can give you kind of on the short, uh, side of this, but I would definitely be looking and budgeting in fencing for paddocking, especially with a cow. Uh, if you let a cow go on even an acre, just one cow, you'll be surprised at how ravaged the land can become in a very, very short period of time. Um, the way Marjorie put it, she used to keep cattle and she doesn't anymore, is it takes an awful lot of grass to make one gallon of milk. It takes a ton of it. Um, with goats, you would even have an easier time. You just got to make sure you keep them in. And I think a paddocking approach, using manure, using what they do to the land, following them with chickens and then following them with a planting, man, you could really do a lot on an acre to an acre and a half. But again, in spite of my just... I, I don't get why Mother Earth News must do a feature story on global warming in every freaking episode. And then put two or three little pieces about it throughout the whole damn magazine. 
Uh, I don't know why they can't stick to actually being self-sufficient and farming and doing the stuff that they want you to do anyway and just say, well, if everybody did this, then your belief in this religion of global warming would be satisfied anyway. Um, but that's a great article. I almost didn't buy a copy this month, but when I saw that article, I thought that was worth buying it alone. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next one. The next one comes from Carson, and that would be Carson from Canada who calls us all the time and He says, my wife finds amazing, finds some amazing stuff. And uh, with that, he has a link to a YouTube video that I'm going to go ahead and play for you right now because I really liked it. Good morning, Hank. It's Friday. It's also 117,000 degrees outside Celsius. And like a boss, I decided to go for a walk. Do you know what the most common irrigated crop in the United States is? Turf grass. Do you know there's three times more irrigated turf grass? You know, I can't do this. I, it's too hot. It is hotter than Kim Jong-il would be if he died and went to hell. Uh, yet more evidence, Hank, that outside is overrated. Right, so there's three times more irrigated turf grass in the United States than there is corn. But more importantly, almost all of the water that we irrigate turf grass with is potable. About 30% of the overall drinking water supply in America goes to feed grass. Hey, it seems to me that the American front lawn is the best possible example of how what is called status quo bias can lead to, like, complete insanity. I mean, obviously, front lawns are a terrible idea. I mean, Hank, what do all of these front lawns have in common? No one is using them! They're just sitting there sucking four billion gallons of drinking water every frackin' day! Also, in order to maintain this completely unnatural plant monoculture, we use 70 million pounds of pesticides every year on our grass. Grass which, I will remind you, does not feed us! I'm sorry, Hank, but it is very hot, and just like characters in Victorian novels, the temperature reflects my temperament. 70 million pounds of pesticides a year, it's ridiculous. And the most ridiculous part is that I'm out there with them, trying to make sure that my grass looks okay so my neighbors don't get mad at me. Now, Hank, there are some advantages to lawns. Grass turns carbon dioxide into oxygen, although it's hardly the most efficient carbon sink. And there's some soil erosion benefits, although we'd all be better off if we had, like, a big mix of plants in our front yard. And we'd be better off still if we had vegetable gardens. So how did we end up with the disaster that is the front lawn? The British. That's right, Hank. We threw off their colonial yoke and said no to taxation without representation, but they got us on the lawns. The lawn is a British invention, but the idea isn't as crazy in Britain because, as you know, it rains all the freaking time. So they don't have to pump four billion gallons of drinking water every day into their lawns. On the downside, they never get to see the sun. Also, James Murdoch. So, Hank, we're all biased toward the status quo. Not to beat a dead horse, but that's the only reason we still have pennies. Like, if someone tried to introduce a coin that was worth a thousandth of a dollar today, people would be like, that's insane. Well, it's equally insane to have a coin that's worth a hundredth of a dollar, but since it already exists, we're all okay with it. So, Hank, if you can close your eyes and imagine a world in which there's a huge vegetable garden in the front of every home in suburban America, and there's a multi-billion dollar industry of people taking care of these vegetable gardens and watering them and helping you to harvest the crops, Your food costs go down, you have more vegetables in your diet, we use less oil and gas to transport food, but then one day you decide to rip up your vegetable garden and become the first person in your neighborhood to lay down turf grass. Your neighbors are going to come over and be like, hey, what's the new thing? And you'll be like, that's turf grass. And they'll be like, great, uh, what do you cook it with? And you're like, no, you don't eat it. In short, Hank, your neighbors are going to think you're crazy, partly because they have status quo bias toward this world in which all front yards are composed of vegetable gardens, and partly because they're right. But Hank, the weirdest thing about status quo bias is that it doesn't actually 
actually preserve the status quo. Over the last 40 years, American lawns have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We're trying to preserve the status quo, and we have an idea in our head that's fueled by advertising that lawns should be massive. I know this, Hank, because it happened to me when we moved to Indianapolis. I was like, Sarah, we gotta get a huge yard. I want a riding lawnmower. And she was like, you are not going to enjoy mowing the lawn. And I was like, I'm gonna love mowing the lawn. Yeah, so long story short, the heat index is 114 degrees, and I have to go mow the lawn. Hank, I'll see you on Monday. Well, that's a, uh, on a YouTube channel called Vlog Brothers, and I'm not sure who Hank is who he's talking to through all of this, but uh, maybe it's his brother. That would make sense. And maybe they vlog back and forth to each other, which is like blogging with video. Anyway, uh, that's really not why I played it. I played it because doesn't this guy make a great sense? There's a new word that I picked up here, and I guess I talk about it all the time. But I've never actually used the word to define it. That's status quo bias. And I think a show on how status quo bias is destroying the mentality of America and ruining the American way of life by purporting itself to be the American way of life is on the way. I think I'm going to put that together. So that alone is worth listening to. But this guy brings up an interesting case. And I'd like, that, I'd like you to really think about this. Especially in light of the lunacy and stupidity uh, up in uh, Michigan recently where they were going to put a lady in jail for a front yard garden. If if everybody in America, uh, or as many people in America as that have lawns, okay, that, that kind of number of people, went out in their front yards, laid down cardboard, threw mulch on top of it, and started planting food, if that happened, if that wondrous day occurred, and if that had been going on for 50 or 100 or 200 years, as long as the obsession with the American lawn has been going on, Since apparently we were suckered into it by the British, if that's true. I don't know if that's true or not. But if it had been, a couple hundred years from now, so that nobody that was alive, no one living, remembered a day when most yards were grass. And then in the middle of your neighborhood, you saw a neighbor with a couple trucks in his front yard hauling dirt away and spreading some dirt out and taking down planter boxes and all. And in came a bunch of people carrying this uh, turf grass in, in sod cutouts, you know, where they lay it down like carpet. And uh, he was having this, uh, you know, a, 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 what do you call it, a sprinkler system put in. And uh, all of a sudden he saw all these little whirly bird sprinkler heads come up out and, and like soak down this big mat of green grass. And, you know, it's kind of brownish because it's just planted, but like a couple weeks later it's bright green and you saw him out there walking behind this machine going, bah! and you went over and you talked to him and you said, what the heck is this stuff you're planting? And uh, he said, it's grass. And you said, and like he said, how do you cook it? How do you eat it? And he goes, oh, you don't cook it and you don't eat it. Well, what if it kept going from there? What if he said, okay, so what does it do? And he, he says, it's doing it now. That's what it does. It just sits there. And it looks pretty. And he goes, oh, it kind of looks all right. I, I even have a little patch of it like in between my rows and all, but you can't eat it. Does it, does it improve the soil? And he goes, ah, oh, no, I got to fertilize it. Really? And well, what if when you, I'm seeing you cut it and you got all this stuff, are, are you going to compost this? He goes, oh, no, I got to put it in bags and have city take it away throw it in a landfill. I mean, wouldn't everybody look at that guy and go, you're freaking bat crazy nuts? But because we did it the other way around and we put the lawn in first, we actually think somebody's kind of lost their mind when they replant their front yard into a vegetable garden. So much so that in some places it's illegal uh, or people are actually put in jail if they fail to comply with the request that it be removed. We have homeowners associations which are supposed to keep property values up by ensuring that everybody grows a completely useless, completely pointless crop that costs money to maintain. And, and I mean, really, this is where we're at today. 
And I, I don't understand in some ways how we got here because there was a time, there was a time when the lawn and the garden coexisted. I remember my grandparents' place. You know, I never really thought of it, but it was a front yard garden. It didn't feel like a front yard garden though because the land, the, the house was actually planted almost all the way to one end of the land. And then the road came up along the side of the house. And then out in front of the house was our lawn, you know, where the dog would run. And we had grass. We had this stuff called clover growing in the grass. And the bees were always in the clover. And the rabbits were always in the clover. And the chickens would go through the yard and eat the clover. And the clover made nitrogen. And the chickens made the clover into more nitrogen. And then we had a driveway where we parked our cars. And then below the driveway was our garden. And we had, what was it, about nine rows. And they were about... 40 feet long each, and then maybe two more that were about 40 feet long down there. And then there was grass with clover in between the rows. And they were just in the ground beds. There was no you know, uh, planter boxes. I didn't know what a planter box was yet. And the whole place looked beautiful. And it looked beautiful in the winter when it was a blanket of snow. And it looked beautiful in the spring when it was just coming up. It looked beautiful in the fall when the, the corn had turned brown. And it looked beautiful all the time. And we had a lawn, and a lawn is not evil in of itself, but if you would have told my grandmother or my grandfather, hey, what you need to do is get rid of that garden and make sure it's grass all the way down there, we need to have a chemical company come in and spray and kill all that nasty clover off and make sure you have nothing but grass here, they would have probably shot you. So even though the British gave us this according to this guy's video, uh, even though it's been around for hundreds of years now, I still have a hard time understanding how we've gotten here. Until I think about the last 50 years in this country where people have let go all of their responsibilities. Do you realize that the most fundamental responsibility that we have as human beings is to feed ourselves and our family? There is nothing more fundamental than that. And when we gave up the garden, we gave up that responsibility. And you want to know why all the other responsibilities got given up? If you can give up the very responsibility of actually feeding yourself and get by in a nation, and you decide, well, that was easy, how easy is it to start giving up your other responsibilities? And what's the problem with giving up responsibilities? When you give up your responsibilities, you give up the concurrent rights that go along with them. And that's why people in this nation have allowed their rights to be trampled on, because we let them take away our gardens. You might think that's a little over, overly simplistic. It is not. When a person no longer feeds themselves on any level other than by buying a Big Mac at McDonald's and shoving it in their beak while they, get, they jump over into the fast lane on their cell phone and drive too slow, when that is feeding yourself, then all of your other responsibilities begin to go by the wayside. And I've said this in shows before. There is no such thing as a right without responsibilities that go along with it. You want a right to self-defense? Well, you have a responsibility to make sure you're capable of defending yourself. Because you can't just stand there completely unprotected while some big guy comes over and shoots you in the face with a bazooka and say, but I have a right to self-defense, so don't shoot me. It doesn't work that way. You have to be prepared to act. You have to have a way to defend yourself. And if you don't pull it off, you die. And just because you have the right doesn't change anything. If you want a right to free speech, you have to stand up and be freaking heard. If you stay silent long enough, no one's going to listen to you when you talk. And every other right that we hold as dear in this nation, if you do not maintain the responsibilities that go along with them, you will lose your rights. And that is how we've lost our rights. And to me... A big part of it, and this is why I'm so big on let's put it back, is we gave up the right to feed ourselves. Just my thoughts. Let's take another email. All right, so um, on feeding ourselves, one of the best crops we can grow uh, for large production, to get a lot out of a little, 
uh, and to get both really great stuff to eat in the summertime uh, that's just great fresh or can be dried for long-term storage and to get even bigger yields in the fall and the winter and a perfect storable food that can store for six to eight months just sitting on a shelf or squash. Now, zucchini's not going to store for six to eight months, but those good winter squash varieties will. Uh, the problem, and we've talked about this a lot, and I've got two pieces of suggestion here for you, so I'm going to read them both today. But I actually got three emails over the weekend from people dealing with them as well. Is the squash vine board. The squash bug is nothing compared to the vine board. The squash bug crawls on your plants and makes the little dimple marks in your zucchini. It doesn't look as pretty, and but they're there, and they're slow, and they're stupid, and they're easy to pick off, and you hit them with a little insecticidal soap, and they go, ah, and they fall on their back, and they kick, and they die, or you get your predator wasps going, and they fly in, and they murder those suckers. So they're, they're, they're annoying, but they're something we can deal with. But the vine borer is an evil little demon that goes inside the stalk, and kills it from the inside, and by the time you know he's there, usually you've lost your plant. So um, somebody sent me a link, Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor, who's down in Dallas, and I used to listen to on the weekends when I was ever in my vehicle on Sundays would listen to his show, and he's a great guy, um, has a page about them. And uh, you can take a look and you can see what an adult looks like on his page. So I'll put a link in today's show notes. Uh, but here is his uh, control suggestions. Natural control. Plant more than just a few plants. Plant early and promote vigorous growth. Plant cucurbits with more solid stems, such as butternuts and winter squash, beneficial nematodes. Um, on the winter squashes, yeah, but not all winter squashes. A lot of winter squashes have the great, big, beautiful vines, but anything with that tight, dense vine is generally a lot more uh, likely to get by, and I've never had them kill things like cucumbers and cantaloupes. I, I've really not had a problem with them. They've got into a cucumber vine or two, and they kill that runner, but usually they don't kill the whole plant the way they do with squash. Uh, organic control. Uh, slit the stem and remove the bore. Pile soil over the damaged stalk. That's something we've talked about before. Some say injecting bac bacteria, Bacillus thungogenesis or BT or beneficial nematodes in the stalk with a syringe works. Both methods are a lot of trouble. Uh, and and I, I told you it didn't work for me. Uh, I tried the nematodes. It was expensive, too, and it didn't work. Cover plants with a floating row cover, but remove when female flowers start to form. Spray plants with BT product when yellow flowers first bloom. Check the base of stems and remove reddish eggs before they hatch. Treat soil with beneficial nematodes. I think that's all good advice, but if there's a lot of them, it's tough. Insight. Squash vine borers tend to avoid big squash farms but destroy home gardens, so plant more plants. So I guess if you just plant enough of it, they'll only get some. Um, I don't know if that's true, though. Uh, tips from a listener. Squash bugs, different than squash vine borers. Listener tip. Periodically, I would check the underside of leaves. If eggs are found, I would use masking tape and lightly press against the eggs to remove them and transfer them to a leaf of tape and then throw it into the garbage. Try removing the eggs otherwise would damage the leaf. Masking tape is not that sticky and seems perfect to the task. Another of my listeners called in with a tip controlling squash bugs and claims it works great. The technique is to put the plants in cages like those used for tomatoes. Growing the plants vertically rather than sprawled on the ground apparently keeps the bugs away. Give it a try and let us know if you get the same results. And I can tell you that I grew a lot of my squash on trellises and the suckers came anyway. So that's not really worked well for me. Another listener sent in another method of control uh, for squash vine borers. I'll give you the recipe, and here it is. And they, you know, if you want to rewind it, write it down. I'll say it slow because I'm not going to publish this. But here's what the recipe for organic vine borer killer is. 
Uh, it says, and this is from Danny, Jack, I ran across this recipe in my latest gardening book. It's supposed to kill squash, vine, boar, moths, and many other pesky pests on contact. There's no mention made regarding the effect on friendly insects. I can tell you it's probably bad. Uh, five unpeeled gar- cloves of garlic coarsely chopped, two cups of boiling water, One half cup of tobacco tea. To make this, place a handful of chewing tobacco in an old nylon stocking and soak it in a gallon of hot water until the mixture is dark brown. One teaspoon of instant tea granules and one teaspoon of baby shampoo. Put the garlic in a heat-proof bowl, pour the boiling water over it and let it seep overnight. Strain out the solids and mix the liquid with the other ingredients in a handheld sprayer and have at it. I hope this helps Danny. I think it'll probably work really good if you spray it on the moth. And, and this is the problem with vine borers. The moths aren't hard to kill. You just have to see them before they lay their eggs. It's that those eggs, when they hatch, they're such a small little grub, and they get inside the plant. And once they're inside the plant... Even if you were going to use chemical pesticides, they're very, very difficult to kill. But there's all of the information that I have on squash vine borers. Uh, sticking with the agricultural theme today, uh, I got an email from somebody, and I want to read it, and I want to be fair to this person. Um, and I'm not, I want to make sure that I'm understood, but I also want to tell you what I said back to them. Uh, this comes from Erica, who is a farmer. And thank you for being a farmer and an organic farmer, and thank you for being an organic farmer. Hi, we are a certified organic producer of vegetables, small fruits, and have been since 1983. I do agree with some of your statements and ideas, but I must voice a few concerns. One, yes, the government does control the organic label, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It means that there are people who actually come to our farm and regulate actions. Our local inspector is great to work with. The standards being certified organic are in place for a reason. They have even tested our soil to make sure there's no chemicals being put on, and they keep records of our seeds to ensure they are organic. Two, paperwork. Any good farmer knows that keeping records is key. It ensures that for the best crop, as crop as, as cost-efficient as possible. Records of crop rotation, soil amendments, planting, sales, etc. are necessary for successful business. I do not have to keep special records for the government. I give them a copy of my records uh, with, with, with also insurer's regulation. Okay, well, you know, maybe you don't have to do extra paperwork for organic. And maybe I've learned something, and if that's the case, great. Cost. Yes, the cost of the certification in seeds is there. However, for our farm, it has not been unreasonably unreasonable or unable to be met. Being certified organic also allows us to charge a little more for our products to offset any and incurred costs. I understand some of your concerns, but I do not believe certified organic is as negative as you put it. I agree with anyone who is trying to spread the word on harmful effects of genetically modified foods and pesticides. As a local farmer, all my customers know exactly what they're getting. I encourage you to continue with your idea. Just keep in mind there are many satisfied certified organic growers. Erica. And here's my response. I'm glad you like the organic program. Great, for, great, good for you. The market, though, has gotten to where many people have tremendous concerns, especially where big ag is involved. Have you looked at the quality of organic veggies at Walmart? And I want to make sure I say to everybody, I bet you the food that this lady's producing is amazing, and I'd love to eat it. So I want to make sure that that's tempered with all of this. Additionally, the GMO industry will eventually break down the barrier, and genetic modified uh, seed will become part of the organic label. Sorry, 
but when that happens, and since Monsanto basically owns the USDA, it will, the organic label will be devalued beyond words. Even if you don't use them, the market will have no way to know that. And folks, that's going to happen. I really believe that. I also have some things I think organic doesn't allow, such as any use of commercial fertilizer, for instance, that squeeze out some really high-quality food. Producers that do improve their soil but use some fertilizer for heavy feeders, etc. Many consumers would be happy to buy from such a producer over pesticide-laden crap. Many people who would, would be happy to buy a chicken that was pastured but also fed some feed that isn't blessed by the USDA as organic if they had the choice. You see, when I go pick up an organic apple, I have no idea who grew it, where it came from, what else the producer grows, how they manage their land. Organic does nothing at all to connect me to the farmer that grew my corn or raised the beef on my grill. AgriTrue isn't designed to be a private version of organic. It is designed to do one thing. Nothing else does so far. Connect the producer and the consumer. 90% of what AgriTrue is about isn't the base standards. It's about disclosure and the producer profile. Imagine if when I bought your strawberries from a stand at a farmer's market or say a small community market, I see your berries and sure they're blessed by the G-Men as organic. But there also says a certification for AgriTrue with your farm's name on it. I scan said certification with my smartphone, there is your profile, pictures of your farm, answers to common questions by buyers of your food, I know your name, how long you've farmed, what you think, feel, do to feed people like me. I know yes, no pesticides are in my food or that you don't destroy the soil because I can read your soil improvement plan. I can choose to buy or not to buy your food based on what I care about. Organic is nothing compared to this. Lastly, I hate government, period, end of the story. To me, they have no business in agriculture at all. There is nothing the government does other than build roads, provide law enforcement, and the military that private industry can't do better. If those ass clowns in D.C. ever ban genetically modified organisms, I may change my mind on that. Until then, I'm building a free market system. May I also remind you that producers like you only feed 2% of the population. That's my best guess based on production numbers, folks. The government created a system of garbage that feeds and kills the other 98%. Then they spent $9 million to replace the food pyramid with a friggin' dinner plate icon. Oh, by the way, organic certified producers will definitely hit the minimum agritude standard and are encouraged to use both labels. Thank you for your farming, Jack. So I'm not trying to be mean there, but I'm trying to point out something. Again, and this is AgriTrue, folks, which is a new program I'm putting together. If it's you've, you haven't heard the previous episodes about it, that's designed so that when you buy food, you know where it comes from and you know what's been done with it. And I don't have a problem with the organic standards. I have a problem with the organic standards being controlled by government and them deciding what's organic and what isn't. And them saying, we own the word organic. If you're going to do that, folks, they need a new word. They need to come up with a word that's not been in the dictionary since before the United States existed. Okay, Organic means a carbon-based life form. Right? I mean, that's basically what organic means. Or, a tree is organic. It's an organic substance. You know, oil is technically organic because it comes from life. It's carbon-based. That's what organic means. And they've taken a word and changed its meaning and then told you how you have to use it. That's why we came up with agritrue. We came up with a word that didn't exist. Agra, it was a prefix, and true existed as a word, but the two put together is a new word. We can legitimately say we created it, right? How can you say you created organic? It's crap. And I also absolutely know on the large-scale operations that organic is something that these producers are buying. People like this lady that wrote me 
are not in should not be lumped in with that statement. But I believe that her work to be organic is being devalued by what Big Ag is doing with the organic label. I absolutely believe they're going to get their way and they're going to push GMs into the organic food supply. They're going to they're going to make it happen because they own the USDA who owns organic. So they own them and they own every producer. And I just don't believe that government is our solution. I really don't. I believe the market is the solution. And I don't believe that government has done anything at all to help you know what you're eating. In fact, they've done everything they can to hide from you what you're eating, and they've used organic as a tool. Again, the organic producer is fine. I have no problem with them. I want to serve them too. I want AgriTrue to help make them better. I don't want them to even give up their organic label. I don't want to shut down the organic program. But I want people to damn well know where their food came from and what's been done to it. Not just what hasn't been done, but what's been done to it. And I want the consumer to once again know the farmer by a name and take the farmer's word as being more valid than the government's word. There was a time in this country, in fact, it lasted for about 150 years, Where when a farmer gave you his word, you didn't need anything else. Even a banker would take a farmer at his word and they would make a mortgage on a handshake. We've lost that world. I'm trying to bring a little bit of it back. That's what agritree is really about. Um, next, uh, I have an email I think we should definitely l listen to because it's a guy that sees this kind of stuff all the time. Jack, I don't have a question, only some observations from work. I'm a firefighter and recently went on a call for an accidental self-inflicted gunshot wound. This is not the first gun cleaning accident I've been on and certainly not the first one I've, I've listened to over the radio. I got my first BB gun when I was 9 or 10 and a 22 rifle about a year later. I'm now 28 years old and I can tell you in 18 years of owning and operating firearms, I have never even come close to shooting myself while cleaning a gun. Would you like to know why? Because, and this is in all caps, I make sure the gun is unloaded before I clean it. Oh, and I also, again in all caps, don't clean my guns drunk. This was running through my head as a man with a .22 caliber hole in his chest was protesting that he owned guns for 30 years and he has only had a six-pack to drink. I think a lot of people think that they are more cautious than they actually are when it comes to guns. I think we all need to remember the first rule of firearms. Treat every firearm like it's loaded regardless of whether you know it is or not. It still makes me very uncomfortable when the muzzle of a gun is pointing in my direction, which is another reason I don't understand shooting yourself while cleaning. Why are you pointing the gun at yourself even when you're cleaning it? Gun safety is something that sometimes is taken lightly. If you are ever in the position of drunkenly defending the hole in your chest uh, with your 30 years of gun-owning experience, please let the firefighters or paramedics trying to save you can't legally tell you you're an... Uh -huh. Okay, if you're, I, I read that wrong. If you are ever in the position drunkenly defending the hole in your chest with your 30 years of gun-owning experience, please know that the firefighters and paramedics trying to save you can't legally tell you you are an idiot, but we all think it. Uh, so that's <laughs> that's some solid advice there. And I have a rule. If I have a drink, my gun comes off and it goes away. And if I've been drinking and somebody breaks in the house, I would go get the gun and still try to defend myself. But I don't mess with the gun when I'm drinking, period. And, and I don't think you should either. I, I don't even think you should touch it. It doesn't exist uh, at all once you've consumed alcohol, period. Um, and then he has another question. Additionally, I do have a question about my retirement. I'm not overly confident in the state of California, you and me both, brother, and I still have about 26 years until I'm able to retire. What are your thoughts on withdrawing my built-up retirement, which isn't a ton, and putting it into my personal retirement savings? If you can do it without too much pain, without too much cost, I would do it. I 
Um, usually with like that kind of a job, a city or a county job, you have like two types of retirement, what you're contributing to and what they're putting away for you. Um, what they're putting away for you, you probably can't get your hands on and you probably should just, you know, let that accrue and hopefully we'll get through this mess that's coming. But if you've put money in there and you can withdraw it with minimal penalty, uh, especially in the state of California, I would really consider doing it. But you got to make that decision based on all of your financial needs and situations. Another and probably better tactic would be if it's about contributions, stop your contributions and make your contributions into an IRA, specifically a Roth IRA, especially at your age, uh, which means you won't get the tax deferment, but you'll never pay taxes on the money. Uh, and then when you're doing that, if you can only do 5%, 10%, whatever it is you're doing, split it in half and put half of it into a regular savings account and keep some money outside, just like I said earlier today. Um, California is one of my biggest states that I'm concerned with going under and tanking. Uh, I don't know, though, do you work for the state? Do you work for the city? Who do you work for? So it's more important who you work for than just the state itself. If you're a state employee I in California right now, man, you better have plan B and C. That's all I can say. And I think the same about New York. I think the same about Michigan. I, I honestly think the same about at least half of our states, Hawaii, um, she's Florida. I mean, they, 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 there is a lot of problems out there right now at the state and municipal government level. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But if I'm right, it's going to suck for so many people. And I think what you're going to see more likely than a complete default with all these pensions is a severe slashing because they can't afford to let it go all the way under. So what they do is they slash everything across the board. They bring in what we call austerity. And uh, I think that that may be the future, but you're gambling with your future here. And I don't like to gamble. So if there's a way that you folks that are in these areas where these states are really on the verge of completely imploding can protect your retirement at all, I would seriously, I'm not going to say do it because I don't know your individual situation, your individual risk tolerance, but I would seriously consider doing it and I would evaluate all the ways in which it could be done and then I would do whatever you think is best for yourself. That's the best way I can answer that. Um, next one comes from Daniel. Daniel says, interesting new biotech process. Thought you might be interested and there's two links. And the one link is pretty short. Let me read it to you and I'll tell you what I think after I read both of these to you. New biotechnology platform improves crops for healthier food. This is on growingproduce.com. Innate technology from J.R. Sim Simplot Company is a patented plant biotechnology process that works with the plant's own genes to enhance desirable traits to desirable traits to decrease less desirable traits. Traditional plant breeding is a random method for crossing genetics with unpredictable results. Innate technology precisely targets particular traits without introducing foreign DNA. Simplot's first application of innate technology involves improving potato varieties, which differ from their conventional counterparts in three ways. One, reduced black spot bruising. Two, reduced degradation of starch to sugar during storage. And three, reduced uh, asparange levels. These traits are beneficial to consumers and to the potato industry. So let me read the other article, which gives us a little bit more information about this. And this is on uh, Simplot's actual site. So this is on the site of the company that actually is doing this. Innate technology is a patented plant biotechnology process that works with the plant's own genes to enhance desirable traits and to decrease less desirable traits. Research shows that consumers prefer such native improvements. 
Innate technology has wide application in food, crops, and medicine. Simplot's first use of innate technology improves potatoes in three ways. Again, less bruising, less degradation of starch to sugar during storage, uh, and lower sugar, lower aspirin, uh, contributing to lower acetamate levels in potato products. And uh, aspirin, and I'm not sure how you pronounce this, but it's an amino acid, this aspirin, aspirin-y stuff, and it will then uh, cause, especially when cooked, um, another compound to be formed when they're high that can lead to cancer. It's considered a carcinogen. So lower levels of this would be a good thing. Simplot's innate technology will empower the food industry. This is not this corporate speak here, isn't it, folks? Let me read this to you in the announcer voice. Simplot's innate technology will empower the food industry to improve plants in a way that benefits consumers and offers them new choices and making the foods they love even better. The total the tech, the, in total, the technology has 16 patents granted and 26 patents pending in nine different countries. Simplot science patent applications have been granted and are pending to cover four patent families. Precise breeding, gene splicing, promoter-based gene silencing, and transformation methods. Patent applications will continue to be made throughout the world. So what this basically is, is like GMO light. We're going to genetically improve the plant using the plant's own DNA. We're going to do the same thing that plant breeders do when we take varieties and cross them and save seeds and maybe grow a, a variety that's particularly hardy for cold weather. And we're going to grow it as cold as it'll grow, and we're not going to support it at all. We're going to let it freeze, and whatever makes it, we save seed from that. We do it year after year after year, and eventually you get to something that's extremely cold hardy, or we're going to save seed from only the tomatoes that are the firmest, and we're going to end up with seeds that produce firm tomatoes or whatever. We're going to speed that up. How do I feel about this? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I definitely, I definitely feel less concern for this than using a transmutational virus to get a gene from one organism into another organism. I had somebody email me recently and said, that fish gene thing isn't for corn, it's for something else, and or not for what you said it is. I don't care. You know, I don't care that you get the gene from something other than a fish. There is GMOs out there that have a transmutational virus from a fish uh, and other organisms. Two, you know, a fish and a corn do not go together. I use that one as the extreme example because people can understand it. In this case, we're not getting it from a fish or a bug or from a soil bacteria. Uh, we are getting it from itself. So it's about enhancing what we want and removing what we don't want and using science to speed it up. On its face, that sounds okay to me. Believe it or not, I'm not an anti-technology Nazi. We're not introducing anything foreign here, and I don't hear anything so far about making the food in a way where we can spray pesticides and herbicides on it intentionally. You know, I, I don't hear Roundup Ready in this plan. So if that's it, if what I've read on the face is true, this actually might be a viable way to improve the quality of our food. And it might not. I don't know. It's something only time will tell us. My other concern, though, is patents on life forms again. And this is a big problem I have with Monsanto and Conagra and all of the big ag companies. You start patenting life forms. I, I have a real problem with a life form being held under patent. So we can tell farmers you can't save your seed, what have you. You know, I mean... I. <laughs> I understand that a company that does the biotechnology work needs to be able to make a profit, but if you're a really good solid seed supplier, you're still going to sell lots of seeds. I mean, you look at the heirloom providers of seeds. Uh, the seeds are specifically 
designed so they can be saved. They're, they're pure varieties and they, they, they're, they're doing a booming business anyway. Why? Because you can only produce so much of your own seed. Uh, now certain crops would be easier than others, but come on folks. I mean, we start saying that a company owns a, owns a life form. We've got a problem. So I don't like that part. But that's done in so many ways in so many places in agriculture today. I don't want to slay that dragon. I really don't. There's so many bigger things to fight. But on its face, this doesn't seem like a bad thing. I, I think that we'll find out is the way that I'm going to put this. And, and that's the last one I'm going to read to you today. It's the last email I'm going to take today. But I do want to finish up and talk to you guys a little bit uh, as we wrap up today about some things um, that are coming in the future. Uh, number one, I have a great interview set up for you guys tomorrow. Uh, I have... Holly Hirschberg coming on tomorrow. She is the, the founder and force behind dinnergarden.org. Uh, this is the organization that has fed over 65,000 families in America by providing them seeds instead of giving them a government handout or giving them food, actually empowering them to feed themselves. She, I already interviewed her last week, and again, I'll air her interview for you guys tomorrow. It was an absolutely fabulous interview. I've got a lot of really great stuff coming up. Stuart Rhodes from Oath Keepers is going to be coming back on the show next week. Uh, you'll be hearing his show. Uh, I've got uh, uh, James Stein, who is a law enforcement officer, uh, coming on to talk about his perspective on some things, and I think that's going to be really great. First week of August, I've got the Urban Farming Guys booked, and we're going to talk about their biogasifier and their operation and how they are building an urban farm right in the middle of one of the worst neighborhoods in America trying to transform that neighborhood. Uh, Tom Coetz, who's the Baldy guy from Baldy and the Blonde, will be coming on the following week, second week of August, to talk about the currency collapses that have occurred since 1913 through today and what's actually happened in the past and how we can look at what that means in the future and maybe it doesn't look the way Hollywood or certain fan fiction novels say it's going to look and what we can actually do to prepare for it. That same week I've got Bill Wilson from uh, Midwest Permaculture Book to come on and talk about permaculture. So i got a lot of really cool guests and Stephen Harris who just did the biogas stuff send me your questions for Stephen. Put question for Stephen in the uh, subjects and any questions you have on, on solar, wind, bio gas, anything like that, any kind of follow-up questions from his first interview, get them to me so I can put that together and make sure that, that interview is tailored to you guys. So I've got all these great people coming up, but what I want to finish up with you today about is how important I think it is that we do grab back onto this concept that I was talking about earlier, feeding ourselves and not abjugating that responsibility anymore. And I believe there's two ways that we can do this. And one is to produce some of our own food. And two is to ensure the livelihood of the people that produce the food for us. Now, this isn't about Willie Nelson's farm aid back in the 80s and the big giant corporate farms that are out there that grow nothing but wheat, corn, and barley. And those farms are important. I don't want to put those guys down at all because they do a lot to feed the world. They really do. But the small producer that's trying to make a living on 5 to 50 acres that, that, that provides his food mostly in the local market, we hardly know him anymore. And he was becoming a dying breed. But things are turning around now. And we're starting to see a resurgence in that market. And people are demanding that food because when they eat it, they know that it tastes good. So if we're going to be responsible for our, ourselves, our, our own food supply, that's a two-pronged approach to me, and it involves the producers, and it involves walking among them as a producer. And let me tell you something about being a producer of your own food. When you have some of your own failures, and when you work really hard for that salad that goes on your plate, and then you go down to a local farmer's market, and you know a guy that did it you know, a tenfold, twentyfold of what you're doing, 
and he's charging a little bit more than Walmart or Winn-Dixie or Kroger's charging, you won't mind paying for it. You really won't because you'll understand. And because you've grew some of your own and reduced your overall bill, you'll still spend less money in total. You'll ensure his viability, you'll ensure your own viability, and you'll take the responsibility and the understanding of where your food comes from and you'll put it back in your home. If you don't think that's a survival topic, I have been talking to the wrong person for three years. I know most of you do, but I know some of you out there that when I get on this tangent, you know, I get emails, this isn't really a survival topic. Really? Feeding yourself is not a survival topic? I don't understand people that think that way. There is nothing more fundamental to our survival than our food supply. And if you think about it, everything that we're concerned about in the end leads us back to the food supply, even energy. Why is it such a catastrophe if we were to run out of oil or oil were to go up to, you know, $300 a barrel overnight? And Well, because food would cost more. It would cost more for everything in our society, but it would be harder to feed ourselves. If we look at a government collapse, one of the big things then is we have a breakdown of transportation and what's really going to get people hunger and disease from malnourishment. We also live in a country today where most people are obese. More people are obese than aren't in this country, and most of the obese people are malnourished. Do you, do you know that? That most of the people in this country that are fat are malnourished? How insane is that? But it's because what they're eating doesn't actually nourish them. It's crap. So this is what I want you to take away from today's show. You are responsible for yourself. And I think we already know that. Anybody that listens to this show on a daily basis for more than two or three times and doesn't turn it off is a person that knows that. But being responsible for yourself then means you're being responsible for all of your needs. And for your family members that are too young or maybe too old and, and, and now can't do things for themselves, you're responsible for their needs as well. And the most fundamental need that you are ever going to have in your life is to put food in your body. Without it, you will die. You will, and even if you get enough to sort of survive, eventually you succumb to illness. It's good quality food that helps run our bodies, keep us healthy, and enable us to do all the other things that we do. And if you're going to be responsible for that, you have to take on some level of direct responsibility. And buying ho-hos and ding-dongs and going to the grocery store and working really hard for your paychecks, and I understand we all do that, is not really doing it. It's utilizing a system that's there. And that means as soon as the system fails or has problems, we fail or have problems. We need a more direct involvement. That's what AgriTrue is about. But that's only one part of it. I don't care if AgriTrue never existed or never becomes what I think it can become. There's nothing that stops you right now today from finding farmers in our markets and CSAs and things like that in your area and small producers and people that sell direct and start buying some of your own food. And I want to give you one little tip of how to make it work. Um, last weekend, my wife and I went down to the local Hot Springs Farmer's Market, and one of the farms there was selling chickens. And we bought a four-and-a-half-pound chicken, and it cost us about 15 bucks. Now, that four-and-a-half-pound chicken in a grocery store would have been a six-pound chicken for $5. But we took the chicken home, and I roasted it the first night, and we ate it. It was fabulous. It was so – it was different is the best way I can describe it than a factory chicken. It was leaner. The protein tasted more – like higher quality. It reminded me of eating grouse or pheasant that I'd gone out and hunted when I was a kid. Well, four and a half pound bird is actually a pretty decent sized chicken for, for, for two people, because just my wife and I. So the next day, I took a bunch of the meat that was still on it, mostly some thigh meat, and I chopped it up. 
and I chopped up a, a, pe a couple peppers we bought down there, and I chopped up a zucchini, and I threw the peppers in some olive oil with some, with some seasonings and, you know, some cumin and some chili powder and things like that. And uh, once the peppers were almost done, I threw the chicken in there because it just needed to be warmed up, and I did that. And then right at the end, I tossed the zucchini on the top because you don't want to overcook the zucchini. We got out, and we made some, from, some flour tortillas, and we had fajitas, chicken fajitas. Now we've got two meals. So now we're at, what, $7.50 a meal. Now you look at the bird, and there's still quite a bit of meat. you got the back meat, some of the thigh and leg and wing are still on there and all because I just took the easy stuff to get off the night before. We had both basically eaten half of the breast each is what we had eaten with our meal. So we took the whole chicken, what was left of it, and I chopped it with a meat cleaver into chunks, and I whipped it into a pot, and I turned the pot on. I threw some salt and herbs and garlic in there, and I boiled it till I had a chicken broth. I pulled the, the, all the big pieces of chicken out, and then I deboned it, de-skinned it, gave the skin to the dogs, threw the meat back in, threw the bones away, made a pot of chicken soup, which we ate for dinner that night. The next day, there was still quite a bit left, so I ate some for lunch. Dorothy said, I don't really want any. Then she smelled it and said, yeah, go ahead and make me a bowl, too. So now we've had four meals. Well, I just threw the pot back in the refrigerator, and then yesterday I looked, and there's a couple little tidbits of chicken, a couple carrots, and some celery, and some broth. But that was pretty much all that was left, and it wasn't even a lot of broth. So I went and got some egg noodles, and uh, I boiled the egg noodles up. And then I kind of tossed the noodles with the leftover chicken broth and little tidbits of chicken and carrot and celery and then had noodles for lunch. So that was, you know, what, one, two, three, four, four and a half because she didn't eat that yesterday. She didn't eat any. So four and a half meals uh, for two adults. Now that 15 bucks doesn't seem like a lot. And I think, you know, you could make a case. And if you're trying to feed 20 kids and you, you have to go do this and do the same thing with the Walmart chicken, that you could do the same thing, yeah, you can if you have to. And I understand if you have to. And I'm not going to tell you every piece of chicken that goes to the Spearco household is, you know, free-range pastured or organic because we use regular chicken too. I don't want to, but my choices are limited. How much I can acquire is limited. And my finances are limited. That's why I'm trying to do something about it. But when you say, I can't afford $15 for a chicken, it's because of the way you're thinking about that chicken. Because what you're really saying is, I can't afford $2.50 a meal, which you definitely can, and you're probably spending more than that now. And yeah, there had to be some carrots and celery and some garlic and stuff in there, but most of the stuff came from the garden. Uh, even the limited garden we have as far as the herbs and the garlic and stuff like that, stuff that we've saved that was dehydrated that we used. You know, the celery, I have tons of dehydrated celery and stuff like that. So it, it, you can do these things. You can reach out and you can buy from your local producers. And I think you're going to get much better quality that way. One of the things I said in that letter to the lady who is an organic producer, and again, I really respect what she's doing, and I really appreciate her for what she's doing, and I want more people to be able to get in touch with her and buy from her, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. But one of the things I said is, have you seen the quality of what they call organic food at Walmart? And I'll say Kroger, I'll say all the grocery stores. Generally speaking, when you go into the big market stores and you look at organic food, it doesn't look very appealing. Sometimes it does, and that's great. But a lot of times the problem is because they're not using the preservatives and stuff, because they're not you know, using genetically modified crap, because they're not spraying it with garbage, it's not going to transport as well. And they're not getting the organic pepper from the local guy that grew it yesterday. They're getting the pepper from California. It's been in a truck and it's been treated 
once it leaves the producer, transportation and handling-wise, the same way all the other food has. Now, it hasn't been sprayed with stuff and things like that. What I mean by treated is how long it takes to get where it's going, what conditions it's transported under, how the store stocks it when it gets... So by the time that it goes through all that, it looks largely unappealing and it costs three times as much. And then people say, well, I can't afford to buy organic. And what they're saying is, it's too expensive. And when I look at it, it looks like it's already ready to go. Like it's, uh, like I'm gonna, I better eat it tonight because it won't, it won't be good tomorrow. And in some cases, they're right. And this is because we're doing business across state lines far too often. You need to work on your local economies here. And when you do that, you start to tie everything together. If you make your local producer more stable, you make your local economy more stable. So even if there are problems at the national level, your little island, your little area is more stable. And the more people you can bring with you doing that, the better. And if we can start to build little urban farms throughout America, we can transform not just rural America back to what it used to be, but urban America back to what it used to be. There used to be gardens everywhere, folks, and we can turn it back around and we can make it profitable profitable for people to farm and it should be profitable to farm right you work hard to do two main things in america today keep a roof over your head and put food on the table you really do those are the two things that breadwinners and households are really concerned about i want to make sure my kids have a safe secure home to grow up in and i want to make sure that i, I make sure i nourish their bodies so that they can go out and become whatever they want to in this world Well, we can only do so much about the roof over your head, but that comes from a stable economy. And if we do the food system right, if we fix this, if we fix this, so many other things begin to come back into alignment. There's so many things we can do so little about. You cannot dig a hole in your backyard and start pumping oil. If you could, you'd probably be out there doing it. But much of the oil that's pumped is used in a system designed to put food on your table, and you can simply circumvent that. And whether you do it because you believe in the misguided religion of global warming or just because you care about your food doesn't really matter to me. All that I care about is you start doing it. And you start taking responsibility for yourself and your family. And you do that first by taking responsibility for what you eat. And you do it in a way that supports the local people that are working their ass off every day to make sure there is food on your shelf. So instead of while we're shipping food to California, their food's being shipped to Florida. Their food can be going directly from where they're producing it to your plate. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess When we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
can't pay Cause nobody up there cares They're living for today Shut